like to have us turn to our text for this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, and that's on page 154 if you're following along in the Bibles in the pews. We are continuing a sermon series uh, this morning, looking at the intersection of faith and politics. And I've tried to be, uh, I think, clear on what this series is intended to do from the get-go, which is I'm not going to uh, give you a voter's guide, tell you uh, who to vote for, or um, get into specific pieces of legislation or judicial decision-making. Instead, we've been trying to talk about how do we engage this thing we call politics uh, in a Christ-like or Christian way. I've also said, though, from the start that I reserve the right to maybe critique certain parties or platforms or candidates uh, along the way, and we've done a little bit of that. We're going to do a little bit more of it this morning. Now, before you get nervous, like I am... A couple of things to keep in mind. Um, I'm still not going to tell you who to vote for. In fact, by the end of this, I think it'll become pretty clear why I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, I also intend, I take very seriously what I preached last week and the last couple weeks, actually, about being careful with words and avoiding cruelty and instead actually doing things in love. And so I intend to do that this morning, too. Please keep that in mind, that if what I say offends or frustrates you, I am not trying to hurt you. Finally, uh, we did not have Sunday night on the calendar originally for this week because it is a fifth Sunday, and on fifth Sundays we tend to shut down our other programming so that we can enjoy our time with our families instead. But when I realized that this was the Sunday I was going to be preaching this message, I said to Matt, I think we need to put Sunday night back on the calendar so that there is a space for any of you who might disagree or feel frustrated with what I say this morning to come and talk about it. Because that is how we do disagreement in the Christian community. We do it in person, we do it together in community, and we do it face-to-face. That in and of itself is an extremely countercultural thing in today's culture and society. And so I think we have an opportunity to model that well this morning. So now that that's all out of the way, let's go to the Bible. (laughs) Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. Moses is speaking to the Israelites here on the cusp of them entering the promised land, and this is what he says. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to get more. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then... 
he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Christian philosopher and thinker Dallas Willard's 1997 book, The Divine Conspiracy, is one of the best books I have ever read. I've gone through it uh, a couple of times now, and each time I read it, I am struck anew by Willard's lament over the problems that the modern church is facing, many of which he actually believes are self-created by the church as well as the remedies and solutions that he proposes to those problems and difficulties. In a word, Willard is concerned with non-discipleship in the church. In other words, he's concerned with Christians who call themselves Christians, but don't live in a way that actually looks like a Christian or Christ-centered way of life. I recently heard someone summarize Willard's work this way. He said, Willard was concerned that in the North American church it has become entirely possible to convert to Christianity, attend church, and call yourself a Christian, but never actually obey, follow, or become a disciple of Jesus Christ. We get our faith, theology, and belief right, but our actions, lifestyle, and de facto way of operating stay the same, and Willard recognized that this was a problem. And if you're wondering, by the way, why I didn't tell you uh, who said that, it's because I don't remember. But I still thought it was pretty good, so. Willard himself says as much in the introduction that he writes to the divine conspiracy. I've used this quote before, but I'm going to use it again, and you're probably going to have to use me, hear me use it again in the future. Because Willard writes more than any other single thing, the practical irrelevance of actual obedience to Christ accounts for the weakened effect of Christianity in the world today, with its increasing tendency to emphasize political and social action as the primary way to serve God. It also accounts for the practical irrelevance of the Christian faith to individual character development and overall personal sanity and well-being. What Willard is saying there is that there is a reason people don't take Christians seriously anymore these days. There is a reason that the church has become so polarized politically and socially. There's a reason Christian believers and leaders aren't more morally or ethically oriented there's a reason why we as Christians aren't doing well in terms of our mental, physical, and emotional health. The reason, Willard says, is because while we claim the name of Jesus Christ, we don't actually obey him. Later in the book, Willard writes, Non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It is not the much-discussed moral failures, financial abuses, or the amazing general similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us, the kingdom of God. And it is an accepted reality. The division of professing Christians into those for whom it is a matter of whole life devotion to God and those who maintain a consumer or client relationship to the church has now been an accepted reality for over 1,500 years. In other words, Willard diagnoses a lack of discipleship, a lack of obedience, a lack of whole life devotion and commitment to God as the main problem facing the church today. It's not postmodernism. It's not secularism. It's not liberalism. Instead, according to Willard, it's Christians not doing and not being what and who they say they are. 
Willer then proceeds to unpack that diagnosis in the first few chapters of the divine conspiracy, and then through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount, he offers some solutions to remedy it, and finally he concludes the book with a hopeful reflection of what the church and the world at large could look like if Christians actually did obey Jesus. What Willard never really gets around to, though, the book already clocks in at a whopping 400 pages, is spelling out what obedience to Christ actually looks like in the 24-7, work-a-day, everyday lives of average Christians. He sketches a number of concepts, but he's a philosopher, so he kind of leaves it there. He doesn't really nail it down and apply it for everyday people's lives. Instead, he leaves that work to the reader to do. Until 2011 when he started working on a follow-up book called The Divine Conspiracy Continued. In that book, Willard hoped to take the ideas that he'd first developed and sketched out in sort of a rough way in The Divine Conspiracy and then apply them specifically to different professions and positions Christians might hold in today's society and world. Unfortunately, pancreatic cancer took his life before he was able to complete the book, and though a student of his uh, finished it, it reads as half-realized at best. And yet... Some of the early chapters are on the need for moral, what, what Willard calls moral leadership, and they stand out. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. As we continue this series on faith and politics and what it looks like to engage the political process in a Christ-like or Christian way, that's where we need to head next. We need to talk not just about how we ourselves engage in that process, as important as that is, but also how those that we choose to have as our leaders engage in that process as well. In short, we need to talk about character and why character in a leader ought to matter as part of our evaluation of them. After all, that's what our text for this morning is about, too. It's about the need for character in leadership. Deuteronomy 16 through 18 is kind of an interesting stretch of Scripture, to be honest. That's because there's a whole bunch of things that are sort of mixed together here. Mixed in with guidelines about things like religious festivals, idolatry offerings, and of all things, the occult, there are a couple job descriptions for positions and leadership roles that Israelite society will eventually have once they move into the promised land. Remember, and I've talked about this before, but Deuteronomy is, is Moses' farewell address to the Israelites on the plains of Moab. Okay? They're standing right on the cusp of entering the promised land. They're just across the Jordan River, and the Israelites are about to cross that river and go into Canaan to fight the Canaanites and take up residency in the promised land. And so standing there before the nation on the eve of what is about to become one of the most significant events in their history as a people, Moses delivers a cram session of sorts about everything that they need to remember once they're actually in the land. That's what the entire book of Deuteronomy is. It's kind of like a, a last-second address from Moses. This is what you need to remember when you're in the land. And one of the things that Moses tells the Israelites they need to remember are the qualifications, the prerequisites, the character required for their leaders. Specifically, one of the leadership roles Moses says requires character is that of the king. He lists five qualifications for the king here. Israel's eventual king must first be chosen by God. Second, he must be an Israelite from his own people. Third, he must be someone who trusts in the Lord. Fourth, he must be someone who dwells in the Lord's law. And fifth and finally, he must be someone who is humble. Let's walk through each of those in turn. 
Moses starts this job description for the kind of king Israel should have by saying, when you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Now first, let's acknowledge the elephant in the room here, okay? Um, after all, there are, there's kind of a tension in the Bible over whether or not Israel is supposed to have a king, right? There are some texts that make it seem like that's a good idea. For instance, you've got texts like Judges 18, 1 and 21, 25, which say, in those days Israel had no king, and in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. The sense in those passages, and really in the book of Judges as a whole, is that it's not good for Israel to not have a king. Okay, then and now, lack of leadership is a recipe for anarchy, chaos, and social disaster, which if you've read the book of Judges recently, you know that's what the entire book is about. But then on the other hand, you've got texts like 1 Samuel 8. That's the chapter not long after the chaos that we read in the book of Judges, where the Israelites actually do ask for a king. In fact, they ask for king in almost exactly the way that Moses says they will here. Petitioning the prophet Samuel, the Israelites come to him and say, You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when the people said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Well, there it sounds like it's a bad idea for Israel to have a king, right? So which is it? Is Israel supposed to have a king or not? Is this a good idea or no? Is this something that they should ask for or shouldn't they? Well, the answer, it seems, depends on what kind of king they ask for. As John Golden Gay writes in his commentary on Deuteronomy, having kings is suspect because God is supposed to be Israel's king. Yet when Israel has no human kings, people do what is right in their own eyes, resulting in moral and social chaos. Deuteronomy's angle offers another take on coping with this ambiguity. Israel can have a king, but God will choose him. So that's the first qualification we see here for Israel's king. God has to choose him. And the reason, I think, is simple. It's actually right there in the request. Israel comes to Samuel and they ask for a king such as all the nations have. That tells us something about the model for kingship that Israel is using, right? Where are they getting their ideas of what a good king looks like from around them? They're looking at all the other kings around them. They're seeing those kings. That's become their model for kingship. But God has a different model in mind. He looks for different things. As he says to Samuel later, do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. That's why the Lord needs to choose Israel's king. He needs to choose Israel's king so Israel ends up with the right kind of king. And what kind of king is that? It's a king like God himself. That's what we see here. That's the kind of king that God wants for his people. That's the model of kingship he gives them. He wants them to have a king like him. As scripture later on describes some of Israel's kings, specifically David, he was a, what? King after God's own heart. 
That's the model for kingship that God uses. And so to ensure that, that that's the kind of king Israel ends up with, God tells them that he's the one who gets to pick. That leads to the second qualification here, though, which is that Israel's king must be an Israelite, not a foreigner. Moses says, he must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. Again, the reason is simple. Aside from common sense, which is that people from their own people know and govern their own people better than those who are not from their own people, God is again trying to ensure that Israel will have a king like him. What's the best way for Israel to have a king like God? To have a king who knows God. What's the best way to ensure that they have a king who knows God? To pick that king from God's people. Doesn't always work out the way that it should, but at least there's a head start there, right? Because in theory, an Israelite king will know and serve the Lord. And so Israel must have a king from their own people so that they have a king who at least will try to know and serve the Lord. That leads to the third qualification, though, which is that Israel's king needs to trust God. Moses mentions three things about that here. He says the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray, and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Moses zeroes in on three things here. that kings and really leaders of all types are most tempted by. First, he mentions the temptation to trust in military might and power. That's what the horses are about here. Second, he mentions the temptation to trust in alliances and other powers. That's the piece about taking too many wives. And third, he mentions the temptation to trust in riches and wealth. That's what the silver and gold is about. I don't have time to get uh, this morning to get into all the ins and outs of why that is. We've still got a lot of ground to cover. If you're interested in talking about horses and wives and silver and gold, come back tonight. We can talk about that. Um, For our purposes this morning, the point is simply that Israel's kings need to trust in God over and above anyone or anything else. That's what Moses is getting at here. And then Moses details how Israel's kings are to develop that kind of trust in the fourth qualification for kingship. In verses 18 and 19, he writes, When he takes the throne of his kingdom, the king is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. That's the fourth qualification for Israel's kings. They are to be lawful kings. Not lawful in the sense of knowing right from wrong, although that's certainly important, but rather lawful in the sense that they know the giver of the law, that they know the Lord. That's what will make them good, lawful kings. They will be good, lawful kings if they know God. And the way that they will come to know God, Moses says, is by reading, spending time with, and dwelling on his law. In short, God's law will teach Israel's kings to know him, to trust him, and to govern his people like him. Which brings us to the final qualification Moses gives for Israel's kings, which is that Israel's kings need to rule from a place of humility. Moses writes, Israel's king should not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. What Moses is saying there 
is that Israel's king is not to privilege himself. He's not to take advantage of his position or esteem himself more highly than others. Instead, in a cultural context where the other kings around them, the kings of the nations, often viewed themselves as gods and demanded to be worshipped by their people as such, Israel's kings were to be different. They were to see themselves not as God, but as servants of God. And because of that, as servants of everyone else, too. And so those are the qualifications Moses gives for kingship in Israel. Israel's king must be chosen by God. He must be from his own people. He must be trusting in the Lord, someone who dwells in the Lord's law. And finally, he must be humble. Now, some of those qualifications, I would say, have parallels to today. Others we would need to modify a bit, right, in order to draw those parallels. The point, though, is that morality, ethics, and character, the heart, matters in leadership. That's the gist of what Moses is saying. That's what this passage is getting at. In a word, what Moses is saying here is it's not just the role or the position or the office that matters. It's the person who holds it, too. The question is not just, can they do a good job? Instead, it's, do they have the right kind of heart? That's what Moses is talking about here. The kind of heart a leader needs to have. That's what this passage is trying to convey. So with that in mind, I'd like to come back to Dallas Willard for a bit. Because again, that's what he was trying to get at in the divine conspiracy continued. He was trying to get at the heart, the character, the moral and ethical makeup required for leadership. Willard writes, any conversation about moral leadership must also include the topic of personal character. A little later, he says, we must develop leaders who are just as moral as they are effective. One cannot supersede the other. Okay, what he's basically saying is it's not good enough for a leader just to be effective. We often talk about efficacy. Does this person get the job done? But we also need to talk about are they a good person? That's what Willard is saying. And so to illustrate that, he uses an example from politics. And this is where we're going to get two critiques of some past U.S. presidents. One Republican, one Democrat, okay? And we're going to spend more time on the Democrat. And again, Willard's saying this, not me. So Willard writes this. Some may not remember or care to recall the significant debate surrounding the question of whether President Clinton's ability to lead the nation was irreparably injured after it was discovered he had engaged in and then lied about an inappropriate sexual relationship. All the many and varied opinions and positions regarding the scandal, the investigation, and the aftermath are not the concern here. What is important is the shift that seems to have occurred in the public consciousness. A partition was erected between a person's leadership ability in public office and his or her personal character as a human being. It was proposed that Clinton was able to compartmentalize his life, separating the troubles of his private life from the responsibilities of his public office. In some measure, it appears the majority of the American citizenry and its elected officials in the Senate agreed with this proposal. As a result, in the majority of American social consciousness, personal character has now been either marginalized or largely separated from leadership responsibilities. As long as you can get the job done in public, it matters what little what kind of person you are in private. Willard continues, this is a new and troubling development. The idea is troubling primarily because it stems from an assumption that is blatantly false. 
a fact we learned from the Clinton case and the Nixon case before that, and from countless similar but perhaps less dramatic instances, was that who our leaders are existentially, morally, psychologically, and religiously in private directly affects the way they handle their public responsibilities. To argue otherwise is to choose to ignore the facts. Clinton's and Nixon's personal character and private behavior did affect their ability to govern in public. It is simply a fantasy to believe that one can fully separate and distinguish from the integrity of their personal character. Human beings simply are not made to function as disintegrated persons. Moral leadership and personal integrity are conjoined and for good reason. To disconnect them is to court disaster, both personally and publicly. In a word, what Willard is saying there is that a leader's private life affects their public life. A leader's private life affects their public life. And so as a result, if a leader's private life, who they are behind the scenes, behind closed doors, in other words, their character isn't in order, then they will not make a good leader, nor should we trust them to. We shouldn't trust them to make a good leader because they are being disingenuous. They are being false. Okay, if who they are in private doesn't match up with who they are in public, then in a word, they are lying about who they ought, who they really are, and we ought not to trust them. Now, I actually remember that argument during the Clinton affair, okay? I was a kid at the time. I was about 11 or 12. Um, and so I didn't understand all of what was going on, but I understood enough. Because at a basic level, I understood that President Clinton had done something inappropriate with a woman. I understood that that woman was not his wife, and I understood that he had then lied repeatedly about it, both personally, privately, and publicly. And so I remember hearing people say, grown-ups in my life, those who were talking about it, his personal life is not in order. We cannot trust him as a person. He's a liar, and so we should not trust him as president anymore. He needs to go. I remember that, and I remember agreeing with that. Okay, I remember that even as a kid, that made sense to me. It made sense to me that someone who lives in immoral ways in private is not suddenly going to be a good moral leader in public. Again, a leader's private life affects their public life. And so if a leader isn't a good person in private, then we shouldn't trust them to be a good leader in public either. That made sense to me during the Clinton impeachment trial. It made sense to me back then, and it makes sense to me still today, and I think that for a majority of Christians, people who care about ethics and morality and character, it's made sense in the convening years as well. At least, it seems, until 2016, until the last two elections. Now, before we go any further, I'm gonna say it again. I am not gonna tell you who to vote for. So if you resist the urge to, to storm out of here and stick with me for the next 10 minutes or so, uh, you'll see very clearly why I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. All I'm, going to tell you to, uh, all I'm going to tell you is what I decided personally over the last two elections. I'm not gonna tell you what you should decide. I'm not gonna tell you that you should agree with me. In fact, I'm not even gonna tell you that I'm right because we live in a postmodern age where truth is relative. So who even knows if I know what I'm talking about, okay? We do. 
I'm simply telling you that given the criteria I use in determining who I will vote for, these are the decisions that I, Brandon Hahn, personally made, not what you have to. Okay, here we go, it's my funeral. At least I'm dressed for it. <laughs> I made a decision early in the 2016 presidential primaries, long before either party had decided which candidate was going to be uh, their nominee, while there was still a whole field of Republicans and Democrats vying for the respective nominations that I would not vote for Donald Trump. I made that decision based on his character. You see, according to the criteria I use, again, the criteria I use, for, for what sort of people I will vote for for public office, which I do try to base on scripture, I came to the conclusion that I could not in good faith support him. Uh, for me, his character, his behavior, and the kind of person that he was simply did not line up with the kind of person I believed ought to hold the office of presidency of the United States. I think I just got muted. <laughs> That's a joke. I know, John, you're doing your best. Uh, and I'll just say, I was pretty confident at the time that that decision would end up being a non-issue because somebody else in the crowded field of Republicans would get the nomination. I felt very confident in that. Per usual, I was wrong. I did know many people who did support him, though. And I'll just say that I, I believe many of them had good reasons for supporting Donald Trump. For instance, his outsider status and populist persona appealed to people's desire to see Washington flipped on its head and made to serve the average American again. I get that. His economic and trade policies appeal to those who take a more fiscally conservative financial approach to government and national spending. And many saw in him the best hope to get judges and justices in our court systems who would be more likely to make decisions in line with a historic Judeo-Christian ethic. And I think it's fair to say that that has turned out to be the case. One of the biggest things that evangelical Christians have wanted since 1972 has actually happened. Regardless of what you may think of Donald Trump and his behavior and his decisions, that, at least in my lifetime, is I think one of the best examples of a promise made during an election campaign that has actually been kept. So those were the reasons people gave me for why they supported Donald Trump. And I understood those reasons. Those made sense to me. What I did not understand, though, and what I still do not understand to this day, were those who, as the evidence of Trump's lack of character, especially his inappropriate relationships, comments, and behavior towards women mounted during the 2016 election, defended and even celebrated those faults in him. You see, it's one thing to hold our nose, use the lesser of two evils argument, and vote for someone we don't really like, but whose policies and platforms best align with what we want to see happen in our country. It is another thing, though, to dismiss or even defend character flaws in a candidate simply because they're on our side, part of our party, or the one that we like better than the other one, especially when those character flaws contradict scripture. And that unfortunately is what many Christians did in 2016. They vilified the women who made accusations against President Trump. They dismissed his self-admitted bragging about committing sexual assault as locker room talk. 
And they did all that they could to sideline any talk about character and whether Donald Trump's demeanor and personal life should factor into a decision of whether or not to support him. People actually said to me, we are not electing him to be our pastor, we are electing him to be our president. Which, as a pastor, I have some thoughts about. I have some thoughts about the notion that I, for whatever reason in my role, am held to a higher moral standard than the per person we put in charge of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. But those feelings aside, I also couldn't help but feel it was a bit hypocritical. It was hypocritical because many of the same people who said those sorts of things to me said the exact opposite about the Democratic candidates. When it was the Democratic candidate's character who was lacking, for instance, President Clinton's, as we've detailed earlier, they made the argument that it disqualified them from office, and they were right. But now that it was the other side, suddenly that argument went out the window. Now at this point you might be thinking, okay, so Brandon voted for President Biden. No, I didn't. Instead, as many, many people have told me, I threw my vote away and voted for a third party. Me and 42,000 other people, we really thought we had a shot. I didn't vote for President Biden for the exact same reasons I didn't vote for President Trump. Uh, I didn't vote for President Biden because like President Trump, I believe there are credible allegations of sexual assault against him. I didn't vote for President Biden because like President Trump, I believe his character and moral makeup is lacking. And I didn't vote for President Biden because like President Trump, I believe his demeanor and way of handling himself makes him unfit to hold the office of presidency in the United States. Now again, I am not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you what to decide. If we end up with a repeat of the 2020 election in 2024, which at this point I think seems pretty likely, just know that you are free to support Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whoever else you choose. I will still be your pastor. I hope. <laughs> I will still respect you, and I will still do my best, no matter what, to shepherd and care for you, because that is what I believe Christians are called to do, whether we agree or disagree on politics. Just remember that character matters. It should factor into the equation. That's my point. As I have tried to demonstrate this morning, morality, ethics, and character matters in leadership. That is biblical. I think it is undeniable. And it's also true, or at least it should be, both when it's the other side's candidate as well as when it's ours. We need to take moral leadership seriously as part of the qualifications for the leaders we choose. We may at times have to hold our nose and vote for someone who we don't really like in spite, in spite of their lack of character, right? But we may not dismiss or defend that lack of character. Instead, in those instances, we have to have the integrity to say, yes, that person is my preferred candidate because their platforms and position most closely aligns with what I would like to see happen in our country. But that, whatever it is they've said, whatever it is they've done, however it is they've behaved that is out of line with scripture, we need to have the integrity to say, that is not right. That does not make us less patriotic. It does not make us less loyal. I would argue it actually makes us more because it means we care about the kind of leadership we have. 
After all, as I think Deuteronomy 17 makes clear, God wants us to have leaders over us who will lead us as a society to more closely align with the vision he has for his world. As we'll see when we look at Romans 13 in a couple of weeks, that is part of the goal and task of government, to create a world of good order. But we will only have that if we have leaders who are themselves good. I'll be honest, this all causes me to despair sometimes. I'm sure it does for some of you too. It causes me to despair because I look at the leaders and candidates we have and I wonder sometimes, do any of them actually have character? And the answer, of course, is yes. There are leaders out there from both major parties and others as well who do have character and that alleviates my despair a bit. What alleviates my despair a lot more is the gospel. You see, I kind of expect this world not to go the right way. I expect our country not to go the right way sometimes too. And I expect some of our leaders not to go the right way as well. I expect that because the gospel tells me to expect that. It tells me that we are all of us warped and distorted by sin. It tells me that we are broken and that none of us work the way that we're supposed to. And it tells me, Brandon, but for the grace of God, there go you. But it also tells me of our Savior. It tells me that he came to redeem and renew this world. And it tells me that no matter what happens in this world or in this country, whether I like it or dislike it, whether an election goes the way I want or not, whether the candidate I like and support gets into office or someone else, the gospel tells me that our Savior is King, Lord, and ruler of all, no matter what. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is what gives me hope. He is what gives me peace. He is what gives me comfort and assurance that nothing can take away. And I hope he gives that to you too. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, this world is not the way it is supposed to be. But Lord, that is who you are. You are Lord, you are God, you are King, and so you are in control no matter what else happens. As we face down yet another election in a, in a, in a week or so, help us to remember that. And help us to remember that you have made us to be people who reflect your goodness and glory. And even if it's not the dominant factor, give us the wisdom to at least factor it into the decisions that we make. 